Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Each episode of our series features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting the fruits of his philosophical research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. George Scher, Professor of Philosophy at Rice University, giving a paper entitled Vicious Thoughts. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm afraid there won't be too much soothing balm today. But, um, so just to set the stage, <clears throat> um, what I'm going to present is a chapter from a recently completed book. Um, the book is entitled A Wild West of the Mind. And the thesis of the book is that there are no thoughts at all that it's wrong to think. Um, no matter how uh, nasty a thought is, no matter how malicious a thought is, no matter how, uh, no matter how biased a belief is, um, no matter how ugly a fantasy is, as long as it stays in, in here, um, it may be a mark of not such a nice character, but um, it's not morally wrong in the same way that, that is to say, it's not wrong in the sense that um, assaulting someone or uh, uh, hurting someone's feelings or any number of other things are morally wrong. Morality doesn't get into the private sphere. That's the, that's the thesis of the book. Um, so, okay. I'll, I'm afraid I'm just going to read it, um, but I'll try to read it lively. Early on, you haven't seen this, I conceded that biased beliefs, malicious attitudes, <clears throat> and scurrilous fantasies can be vicious, but denied that this is equivalent to saying that such thoughts are morally wrong. But even if a thought's viciousness and its wrongness are not the same, it remains possible that its being vicious is enough to make it wrong. And many virtue theorists have said just this. To make their case, they, ap they appeal to a bridging principle that connects the badness of a vice to the wrongness of the acts and traits that manifest it. In the current paper chapter, I will critically discuss some prominent ways of elaborating that principle, that bridging principle. Although not all virtue theorists would accept the term, I will, for ease of exposition, refer to all versions of their bridging principle as definitions. Their general strategy in producing these definitions is to equate the right thing for an agent to do with whatever someone who's, who was sufficiently virtuous would do in his situation, and to add that an act is wrong when it is one that a vicious but not a virtuous person would perform. Because the virtues are widely thought to involve dispositions to feel, notice, and think as well as act, these definitions can easily be extended to apply to thoughts as well as acts. We can say, for example, that a thought is morally wrong when it is one that only a vicious person would have. On this account, the reason it is wrong to fantasize about <coughs> torture, domination, and rape is that these are fantasies that no decent person would entertain. As long as they are understood as mere stipulations, these definitions are unexceptionable. But a def definition can contain the word wrong without capturing our standard conception of wrongness. We would hardly advance our understanding of morality if we use 
the phrase wrong act to mean act performed while, we're, performed while wearing a duck mask, or thought that it is wrong to have to mean thought that occurs to one on a Tuesday. To invoke one of these definitions to contest my claim that no thoughts are morally wrong would simply be to change the subject. But are the virtue ethicist definitions really any better? <clears throat> this question is tricky because the nature of morality is itself controversial. Its essential features are sometimes, but not often, but not always, taken to include each of the following. Prescriptivity or action guidingness, a dominant or exclusive em emphasis on the interpersonal, restriction to what agents can control, codifiability in terms of rules or principles, impartiality toward different people's interests, being universally binding, specifying what we owe to others, and being a source of reasons that preempt or override most, if not all, others. A number of these features are potentially relevant to the question of whether thoughts can be morally wrong. And I am inclined to agree that our standard conception of morality does include most, though not all of them. However, the more of the contested features we take the standard conception of morality to include, the less compelling it will be to reject the virtue ethicist definition on the grounds that it fails to capture the standard conception. For this reason, I will make no appeal to any of the cited features except the last. The only assumption I will make about our standard conception of morality is that the reasons it provides have a special force that others lack. But am I really entitled to assume even this much? At first glance, I may seem not to be, for there is no shortage of theorists who believe that moral reasons do not have special force. Of these theorists, <clears throat> some believe that moral reasons do have force, but are not overriding, while others maintain that they have force only for those who already buy into morality. However, while rejecting morality's special force is indeed a live option within metaethics, it is not an option that those who wish to extend morality's requirements into the private realm can afford to adopt. For if they did, they would have to acknowledge that whatever moral constraints on thoughts they favor are themselves without significant force. Thus, at least for dialectical purposes, it does seem safe to assume that moral reasons have some kind of special force. That assumption is shared by many virtue ethicists, and it provides a touchstone against which to evaluate their definition of wrongness as it pertains to thought. To qualify as adequate, that definition must allow us to understand, first, why the viciousness of a thought gives each person a reason not to think it, and second, why that reason is strong enough to preempt or override most, if not all, others. To provide answers to these questions, the virtue ethicist must draw on some substantive account of what makes a trait a virtue or a vice in the first place. Thus, to get clear about the possibilities, we must begin with the notions of virtue and vice themselves. Of the different accounts of virtue and vice that philosophers have proposed, some are clearly incapable of combining with the virtue ethicist's definition of right and wrong. It would, for example, not be helpful to stipulate that what makes an actor thought morally wrong is that only a vicious person would perform or have it, but then to add that what makes someone vicious is that he is disposed to act in ways, act and think in ways that are morally wrong. That pairing would be both circular and uninformative. Circular because it would define vice in terms of wrongness and wrongness in terms of vice. Uninformative because we would have no way of breaking into the circle 
to find out either which acts and thoughts are wrong or which traits are vicious. A bit less obviously, it will also not do to back the virtue ethicist definition of wrongness with a mere enumeration of the traits that are to count as virtues and vices. For if we lack an understanding of what the entries on each list have in common, then we will have no way of understanding either why a trait's appearance on our list of virtues should give anyone a reason to have it, or why its appearance on our list of vices should be a reason to avoid it. Things may improve, improve a bit if we take our list of vices to be unified by the disapproval they elicit, since a trait's being disapproved of arguably does give us some reason to avoid instancing it. However, even if it does, any such reason will be weak and e easily overridden, and so will lack the special force that is characteristic of moral reasons. <clears throat> to avoid these difficulties, the virtue ethicist will have to back his definition of wrongness. And let me just re remind <coughs> you of what that definition is, because I, I gave it at the beginning, and uh, uh, it went by quickly. So the idea is just that um, to say that an act is wrong is to say that, that an, uh, say that an act is right is to say that it's, it's an act that a virtuous person in the agent's circumstances would perform. And to say that an act is wrong is to say that it's one that a virtuous <coughs> agent in the, uh, in the agent's circumstances would not perform. Th those are the definitions I'm talking about. Okay. Um, to avoid these difficulties, the ones I've just been mentioning, the virtue ethicist will have to back his definition of wrongness with an account of vice which explains why we have weighty reasons to avoid it. Of the accounts that satisfy this requirement, the two most promising are eudaimonism and Platonism. According to the eudaimonist, a virtue is a trait that is conducive to its possessor's flourishing, while a vice is a trait that detracts from it. According to the Platonist, a virtue is a trait that is oriented toward the good, while a vice is a trait that is either indifferent to the good or actively oriented to the bad. Of these influential views, the first is promising because it offers the possibility of grounding our reasons to be virtuous in our weighty reason to pursue our own good, while the second is promising because it offers the possibility of grounding our reasons to be virtuous in our weighty reason to pursue the good. If any account of virtue is to support the virtue ethicist definition of wrongness, it is likely to be one or the other of these. But I don't think either account does support that definition, and now I want to explain why. Because eudaimonism and, and Platonism raise very different issues, I will have to deal with them separately. I begin with eudaimonism. All right, now to the substance. To establish that each person has a morality-grade reason not to think certain thoughts, the eudaimonist must meet four challenges. First, he must demonstrate that each forbidden thought is suitably connected to some corresponding trait. Second, he must explain why each such trait detracts from its possessor's well-being in a way that gives him a weighty reason not to have it. Third, he must explain why a person's well-being gives him, gives him a reason to avoid not only such traits, but also the thoughts to which they give rise. And fourth, he must explain why a person's reasons not to have the thoughts are not significantly less weighty than his reasons not to have the traits. If the eudaimonist fails to meet any one of these conditions, these challenges, his explanation of why the targeted thoughts are morally wrong will not go through. In what follows, I will argue that he cannot fully meet any of them. 
before we can evaluate the claim that each forbidden thought is rooted in some corresponding trait, we must be specific about which thoughts we mean. Within the literature, the thoughts that are most often said to be morally off-limit include, one, fantasies of rape, domination, and torture, two, racial hatred and beliefs that some groups are inferior to others, and three, malice and enjoyment of other people's suffering. Moreover, anyone who condemns any given thought in any of these categories, anyone who morally condemns any given thought in any of these categories, will generally condemn all the others. Thus, fully to meet the first challenge, the eudaimonist will at a minimum have to establish that each thought in each category, henceforth for brevity each bad thought, is rooted in some corresponding bad trait. But are bad thoughts really linked this closely to bad traits? Just as someone who is usually kind may on occasion lash out cruelly, can't someone who is deeply committed to racial equality occasionally be tickled by a scurrilous joke? And can't a genuinely benevolent person sometimes feel a pang of schadenfreude? If our answers to these questions are yes, as they surely are, then our private reactions and feelings will not always match our broader traits. A bad thought's not being characteristic of a person does not mean that it is not rooted in his character. But it does mean that the thought is not a manifestation of a broad-gauge disposition to have similar thoughts under many disparate conditions. Hence, to preserve his claim that all bad thoughts are rooted in character, the eudaimonist will have to take the aspects of a person's character that connect him to what goes on in his mind to include even very narrow tendencies of thought. But making this adjustment at the argument's first stage will bring complications in its second. For even if a full-fledged vice such as injustice or malice is seriously inimical to its possessor's well-being, it is far less plausible to say this about each narrow and rarely instanced disposition to behave or think badly. Given the immensely complicated interplay among each person's beliefs, attitudes, values, and the other aspects of his psychology, there are bound to be indefinitely many things that each of us would do. Any, there are bound to be indefinitely many bad things that each of us would do and think if the stars were lined up just right. As long as these dispositions do not form a pattern, they seem too isolated and transient to be of much significant in our significance in our lives. But if these narrow dispositions can worsen our lives only minimally and only at the margins, then whatever self-interested reasons we have not to have them will not be weighty enough to sustain the eudaimonist challenge in its at its third and fourth stages. If we can have a weighty reason to avoid a broad but not a narrow disposition to think a certain kind of thought, then the weightiness of that, re that reason cannot be determined exclusively by what such thoughts are about. This means that the eudaimonist is not in a position to conclude that certain types of thoughts, certain types of thoughts, are morally off limits simply in virtue of their contents. Yet, even if his argument implies only that certain tokens of certain types of thoughts are morally wrong, it will still threaten my claim that the subjective realm is morality-free. Thus, to assess the seriousness of that threat, we must ask how well the eudaimonist can meet the remaining three challenges. The second challenge, it will be recalled is to explain why even a broad disposition to think bad thoughts should significantly worsen a person's life. 
The task of assessing the eudaimonist's ability to meet this challenge is complicated by the bewildering variety of things that have been said both about eudaimonia itself and about its relation to virtue. Eudaimonia is translated sometimes as flourishing, sometimes as happiness, and sometimes as well-being. Under each interpretation, its, determines, its determinants are understood sometimes to consist of familiar goods, such as enjoyment, success, and cooperative or gratifying relations with others, but sometimes also of more exotic elements, including virtue itself. Of those who take virtue to have some important connection to eudaimonia, some take the connection to be sufficiency, others take it to be necessity, and still others maintain only that the virtuous are more likely to achieve eudaimonia than others. In each case, some take the connection to be epistemically accessible only to those who have already achieved a modicum of virtue, while others take it to be accessible even to clear-thinking villains. Given this welter of cross-cutting views, the general question of whether having a vicious character worsens a person's life is not one that can profitably be addressed here. I'm sure you're all relieved to hear that. <laughs> um, however, it is worth noting that when eudaimonists answer the question in the affirmative, the vices that they take as their central examples, injustice, dishonesty, cruelty, and the like, are always oriented mainly toward action. This raises the question of how much of what they say can be extended to broad dispositions whose instances are confined to, to bad thoughts. And the answer, I think, is not all that much. For first, as long as a person's bad thoughts do not influence his public behavior, there is little reason to expect the frequency with which he entertains them to affect either his ability to achieve his goals or the quality of his interactions or relations with others. Because we run an additional risk of damaging our standing with others, with, e with each further lie we tell and each further unjust act we perform, a broad disposition to act in one of these, day these ways is obviously more damaging than a narrow one. But nothing comparable is true of degraded fantasies, malicious pleasures, or prejudiced beliefs. The malign Walter Mitty incurs no external disadvantages. And neither, it seems, need he incur any that are internal. Malicious pleasures are, after all, still pleasures. We who, we who are not malicious may not like them, but those who experience them often do. And the same holds for fantasies of domination, rape, and torture. More broadly, a person who inwardly gloats when he encounters discomfort or suffering, or whose worldview is organized around his abhorrence of the Zionist conspiracy, or the evils of race mixing, may nevertheless live a normal, engaged life and may feel nothing but good about himself. By any standard measure, many who manage to keep their bad thoughts strictly to themselves are no worse off from being disposed, for being broadly disposed to have them. Can the eudaimonist accommodate these observations by narrowing his thesis further? In addition to taking the dispositions to think bad thoughts that seriously worsen people's lives, to be restricted to those that are broad rather than narrow, can he also take them to be restricted to some subset of the relevant broad dispositions? Can he say in particular that the dispositions to fantasize about domination and rape that seriously worsen a person's life, and so if the rest of the argument goes through are morally wrong, 
are only those that obsess him to the point of blocking out more constructive and enjoyable pursuits, or that cause him to feel self-disgust or self-loathing, or that provide him with sufficiently urgent motivation, with a sufficiently urgent motive, with sufficiently ur urgent motivation to act in ways that will redound to his disadvantage. And similarly, can the eudaimonist restrict the prejudices and hatreds that count as seriously worsening a person's life? to those that will eventually burst forth in utterances or activities that elicit hostility or avoidance from others? The answer, I think, is that he can indeed preserve a version of his argument by saying things like this, but that the cost of doing so will be to eliminate any remaining role that the argument might assign to the contents of the relevant thoughts. It is certainly true that some twisted fantasies are obsessive and paralyzing, while others engender self-disgust and self-hatred, and that some biased beliefs can lead people to do and say things that are seriously inimical to their interests. But it is no less true that a person who is obsessed about something innocent, the fortunes of the Houston Astros say, or the decline of biodiversity, or the scary mole on his arm, may also be blocked from constructive activities by his obsession, and may also hate himself for it. Moreover, simple bad judgment is at least as likely to lead a person to do and say things that are seriously inimical to his interest, as is any disposition to think bad thoughts. Because obsessive tendencies of thought can be just as harmful when the thoughts are virtuous as when they are vicious, the eudaimonist is hardly in a position to evoke their harmful, their harmful effects to explain why only, the only their vicious instances are morally wrong. <clears throat> So far, I've considered only claims that broad dispositions to think bad thoughts are inimical to one or another familiar form of well-being. But when, however, when eudaimonists maintain that vice makes us worse off, they sometimes understand the notion of worsening in a non-standard way. They sometimes maintain in particular that the best conception of well-being is one that has virtue built right into it and that the proper standpoint from which to understand this is precisely that of the virtuous agent himself. As Julia Annis puts the point, this is a quote, virtue can transform a human life. It can do so because it can transform your view of what happiness is. Along similar lines, Rosalind Hursthaus has written that to an honest person, quote, the exercise of honesty at least toward one's nearest and dearest and in pursuit of philosophy, is partially con constitutive of what the speaker thinks of as flourishing or living well. If the relation between vice and ill-being is similarly constitutive, and if broad dispositions to think bad thoughts are indeed vices, then every virtuous person will have good grounds to believe that we all have reason to avoid such dispositions. But to the eudaimonist who wants to show that even those who are broadly disposed to think bad thoughts are themselves in possession of reasons not to have such dispositions, this implication is no help at all. For because the relevant conception of ill-being is by hypothesis not accessible from a standpoint external to that of the virtuous agent, an appeal to it cannot possibly convince those who do not already, who do not already occupy that standpoint. The problem is not merely that such an appeal cannot motivate a vicious person to change, but is, also, but is also that it does not appear to provide him with a justification for changing. 
The mere fact that he would accept the proposed conception if he became virtuous is no justification, since it is presumably no less true that the virtuous person would reject that, would reject that conception if he became vicious. What is needed to resolve the impasse is some reason to believe that the former transformation would constitute progress, while the latter would be a regression. However, such a reason, if it could be produced, would presumably favor virtue on some grounds other than its relation to well-being. Also, of course, any such reason would have to be provided from precisely the sort of external or neutral standpoint that the current proposal aspires to avoid. So far, <clears throat> I have argued that as long as the closet racist and the maligned Walter Mitty are able to keep their bad thoughts strictly to themselves, there is little reason to believe that either would be better off without his broad disposition to think those thoughts. But suppose next that I am wrong about this. Suppose self-interest, understood in some expansive way, does give each of them a weighty reason not to have the relevant broad disposition. How exactly might that show that such persons also have weighty reasons not to have bad thoughts on particular occasions? This question, the third of our four challenges, may at first seem easy to answer. For because dispositions are manifested one instance, of, one instance at a time, it may seem obvious that anyone who has a strong reason to rid himself of a vicious disposition will have a reason of comparable strength to avoid each of its instances. However, on closer inspection, this is a non sequitur, because avoiding a particular instance of a vice need not go any distance toward eliminating the vice itself. To be a cruel person is to have a deep and pervasive set of interlocking dispositions, to enjoy the suffering of others, notice opportunities to inflict it, act on them when they arise, and fantasize about making people suffer. And these dispositions are unlikely to be much affected by the suppression of any given cruel thought. Because the cruel person who suppresses the cruel thought remains cruel, his reasons not to have the vice will not themselves be reasons not to have the thought. And the claim that he should not have the vice will not by itself imply that he should suppress the thought. It's true that he shouldn't be the kind of person who is disposed to have such thoughts, but given that he is such that kind of person, his actually having them is neither here nor there. This, of course, is not the end of the story. Inspired by Aristotle, many philosophers believe that the way to rid oneself of a vice is resolutely to resist the inclinations to which it gives rise over an extended period of time. If this view is correct, then someone who has a reason not to have a vice will indeed have a reason not to manifest it on any given occasion. However, even if this recipe for self-improvement is defensible, something about which I have my doubts, the contribution that any single refusal to think a cruel thought can make to the eradication of the corresponding vice will be minuscule at best. Because that contribution will be tiny, any resulting, resulting gains in eudaimonia will presumably be tiny as well. However, on the account we are considering, a person's reasons to be virtuous are supplied precisely by the eudaimonia that he will there, thereby gain. And this suggests that when the, when the expected gains are small, the reasons will be correspondingly weak. Thus, all in all, it seems implausible to expect a person's reason to resist any particular instance of a vice to be nearly as weighty 
as his reason to rid himself of the whole thing. But if so, then the eudaimonist attempt to explain why vicious thoughts are wrong will collapse. For as we have seen, explaining this will mean establishing not only that each person has some reason to avoid each ugly fantasy, biased belief, and cruel thought, but also that each such reason is weighty enough to dominate or preempt nearly all others. Reasons grounded in marginal gains in eudaimonia seem far too weak to have this effect. Thus, even if the eudaimonist can meet the, our third challenge by taking a person's weighty reason not to be broadly disposed to think a given kind of bad thought to be distributed over all of that dis disposition's potential instances, the cost of his doing so will be to weaken each of the distributed reasons in a way that prevents it from meeting our fourth and final challenge. Okay, that's, so that's the part of the chapter paper that deals with um, uh, the attempt to uh, work out the argument in eudaimonist terms. Now, um, I'm going to skip um, the next part, which deals with the attempt to uh, understand uh, virtue as orientation to the good, uh, the Platonist part. Um, I think that, that, that part of the paper is a bit boring. So I'm going to skip right to the last section, which talks about a philosopher who is a kind of Platonist and whose views um, do seem to have do seem to have some kind of implication um, about the morality of thoughts, but but um, but the the, the connect the co where, where the connection in question is uh, not obvious. I'm talking about Iris Murdoch, and I'll I'll turn to her now. Here we go. Virtue ethicists gen generally understand virtues and vices as dispositions to think, <clears throat> feel, and notice as well as act. But I think it is fair to say that most give pride of place to what the virtuous person would do. There is, however, a variant of the approach influentially developed by Iris Murdoch, which places its main emphasis not on public action, but on the private ref reflection that precedes it. According to Murdoch, our, our public choices have their origins in the many private acts of attention that collectively shape the way in which we see the situations within which we must choose and act. This means that, in Murdoch's words, at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. Because Murdoch takes the important work of morality to be done internally and privately, and also because she holds that a just and loving attention to the particular can reveal aspects of a transcendent good, her approach may appear to offer an alternative route from a Platonism-infused account of virtue to the conclusion that the private realm is subject to moral regulation. I doubt that Murdoch herself would want to follow this path for she expresses disdain both for the philosophical approaches whose normative vocabulary is confined to schematic terms such as good and right, and also disdain for the related tendency to take all the important normative questions to concern right action. Because she holds these views, Murdoch's insistence 
on the importance of the inner life seems unlikely to yield a direct or unequivocal answer to the question of whether thoughts can be morally wrong. Still, because her views do have implications about how we should think, we may reasonably wonder how close they bring us to the kinds of moral constraints that we are discussing. I will turn to that question shortly, but before I do, I want to summarize the aspects of Murdoch's account that seem most relevant to the question. Writing in the 1950s and 60s, Murdoch defined her position in opposition to what she regarded as a widely held view of agency, incorporating elements of behaviorism, existentialism, and utilitarianism. Try to get your head around that combination. Um, this unlikely trio was said to share a view of the self as a simple center of will, devoid of value commitments, and a corresponding view of choice as a lurch toward an arbitrarily preferred member of a set of prepackaged alternatives. On this account, to deliberate is simply to draw on neutral, neutral factual information to establish which of the available alternatives will best satisfy one's own, or perhaps other people's, ungrounded preferences. But Murdoch argues that this picture misses something essential. In actuality, our options are not prepackaged. And the central moral task is precisely to discern the proper vocabulary in which to formulate them. Murdoch illustrates both the importance and the subtlety of this task in her celebrated example of a mother-in-law, M, and her daughter-in-law, D. In these examples, in that example, M's initial impression is that D is, in Murdoch's words, not exactly common, yet certainly unpolished and lacking in dignity and refinement. D is inclined to be pert and familiar, insufficiently ceremonious, brusque, sometimes positively rude, always tiresomely juvenile. However, aware that her own motives and attitudes may be distorting her vision, M considers D sympathetically and carefully, and in consequence comes to see more. Under the new dispensation, D emerges as, quote, not vulgar, but refreshingly simple. Not undignified, but spontaneous. Not noisy, but gay. Not tiresomely juvenile, but delightfully youthful, youthful, and so on. This example encapsulates many of Murdoch's leading ideas, of which the following four seem most, most pertinent to our concerns. First, as Murdoch makes clear, M's reevaluation of D is not just a shift, but an improvement. Quote, some people might say that she deludes herself, while others would say she, is moved, she was moved by love and justice. I am imagining a case where I would find the latter description appropriate. Second, M's reevaluation is virtuous because it is motivated by love and justice. To attempt to see others lovingly and justly is to respond to the pull of an ideal of the good that is at once elusive and inescapable. Quote, Good is the magnetic center toward which love naturally moves. Third, the central impediment to achieving a just and loving vision is the needy and demanding self and the tissue of fantasy that it constructs to protect itself from a reality that it cannot bear to confront. Quote, in the moral life, the enemy is the fat, relentless ego. And fourth, Although in the actual example, M's revised understanding of D has no impact on, uh, understanding of D has no impact on her actions, it is easy to imagine circumstances 
in which it could and should. Quote, if we picture the agent as compelled by obedience to the reality he can see, he will be saying, this is A, B, C, D, normative descriptive words, and action will follow naturally. As should be obvious, any serious examination of this collection of ideas would lead us into a thicket of vexing metaphysical, epistemological, and normative questions. To avoid entanglement, or at least to stay out of the thickest, the thickets, densest areas, I won't question Murdoch's basic assumptions, but instead will confine my attention to what they imply about how we should think. There are, I think, two lines of argument to consider. First, that we should strive for a just and loving appreciation of others, because without this, we cannot know how we should act toward them. And second, that we should do so because such an understanding is worth having just in itself. <clears throat> These arguments are, of course, not mutually exclusive, and I suspect that Murdoch would take them somehow to merge, but from our perspective, they are worth considering separately. The first argument draws credibility from a pair of truisms. First, that we generally cannot know what we should do without knowing the relevant features of our situation. And second, that facts about other individuals are generally central elements of our situation. There is, to be sure, an apparent tension in the idea that our appreciation of those individuals must be at once just and loving, since an accurate appreciation, which is presumably required by justice, may well include awareness of features that are decidedly unlovable. However, to resolve this tension, it may be sufficient to maintain that the awareness must be both as penetrating as possible and as sympathetic as is consistent with what that degree of penetration discloses. Assuming that this or some other way of resolving the tension will work, the question we must now ask is whether the premise that paying just and loving attention to others is often a prerequisite for knowing how we should act can support anything resembling a moral requirement on thought. The answer, I think, is that this is unlikely because the context in which just and loving attention appears most necessary for knowing what one should do are precisely the ones in which our failure to act as we should looks least like a moral failure. On the one hand, we don't need to know much about a person in order to keep our word to him, treat him fairly, refrain from coercing him, or spare him pain. So fulfilling these familiar sorts of moral obligations does not appear to require that we know the other in any deep way. On the other hand, we sometimes do need to know a lot about a person in order to know, say, whether criticism or praise would do him more good, or how to advise him about an important choice. But this also doesn't appear to support a moral obligation to, to attend to him justly or lovingly, because we are generally not morally obligated to provide others with constructive criticism or advice. This is not to say that we never have such obligations, but it is to say that the obligations, when they exist, are rooted in our particular relationships to particular individuals. When someone cannot fulfill an obligation of this sort without paying just and loving attention to another, there is indeed a sense in which his paying such attention is required. However, as, as I argued earlier in the book, what this comes to is only that if he does not attend justing, justly and lovingly to the other, then an expectation that is internal to this, this relationship will be violated. And so the relationship itself will, to that extent, be defective. Thus, here again, there does not appear to be any moral requirement 
whose satisfaction requires a just or loving vision of the other. Let's skip a couple of pages here. The other way of <coughs> invoking Murdoch's views uh, in support of a moral obligation to reflect justly and lovingly, to argue that clarity of vision is worth having just in itself, is both more appealing and more problematic. <clears throat> it's more appealing because a deep and accurate vision of things is obviously, at least to philosophers, very desirable. While it's more problematic because the gap between the goodness of such a vision and the wrongness of not seeking or achieving it is equally obvious. However good it is to see things accurately and fully, do we do something wrong if we try but fail, or fail to try? Isn't the proper reaction to muddled thinking pity rather than condemnation? If these questions are to have answers, the reasoning behind them will have to draw on the substance of Murdoch's metaphysical and normative views. Because I have resolved to avoid discussion of these views, I won't pursue the questions further, but instead will end with two brief general observations. First, although any successful demonstration that we are morally obligated to seek a just and loving vision of others would indeed falsify my thesis that nothing in the private realm is morally off limits, it would not by itself make contact with any of the specific beliefs or attitudes or fantasies to which moralists about the mental object most strenuously. Although Murdoch would no doubt insist that fantasies about dominating others are pathologies of the omnivorous ego, and that really looking at someone is incompatible with believing that he is inferior to others, any defense of these claims would have to be grounded in a substantive theory of psychodynamics and a substantive account of what really looking involves. The obvious danger is that these grounding premises will be tailored to the desired moral conclusions rather than freestanding. Moreover, second, I think there is independent reason to doubt that any sane conception of morality is going to condemn anyone for not attempting the combination of hyper-focused attention and mysticism-tinged openness to experience that Murdoch found so appealing. We're not all novelists, and it makes no more sense to require that someone with a coarse sensibility and a limited attention span aspire to a refined understanding of others than it would to require that someone with a withered leg aspire to complete the triathlon. A deep and accurate understanding of reality may represent the pinnacle of human achievement, but many can't even get to the foothills. We learn from Kant that every, everyone must be able to do what morality commands. And we learn from the rule utilitarian that this requires e easily graspable rules. To achieve the universality that it needs to govern the lives of the mediocre and unimaginative, as well as the, as the discerning and subtle, a moral code must meet both desiderata. This doesn't mean that such a code can't prohibit certain kinds of thoughts. That's a substantive claim for which I am trying to provide a substantive defense. But it does mean that its requirements, its requirements must be a lot more friendly, must, must be a lot more user-friendly than really look. That's it. Thank you.